Well, it's my privilege to continue the series, uh, the story that we started before Christmas and we continued uh, just a couple weeks ago with the story of creation. We went back to the beginning in the book of Genesis. And today we carry on that story as we find out what happens after we've been placed in the garden, man and woman in the perfect garden. You know, I was sitting in my own perfect garden. That's my apartment anyway. And I was watching some TV and I was, I was multitasking. I was playing Candy Crush and watching TV. But we were doing it as a family. My kids were all on their electronics. I was on mine. It was a family bonding time. And I have to confess, I have a problem. You know, if you've played Candy Crush, you know what I'm talking about. It just sucks you in. But I can quit at any time. I I can quit any time. Really, I, I, th- I told myself I'd just do it the one time. But I, I don't know what happened. I find myself waking up in the middle of the night th- thinking about Candy Crush. <laughs> you know it's bad if you ever watch athletes when they have their, their news conferences and they have the logos in the back that are staggered. And in your mind you're going, I could drop that logo down to connect with that one. <laughs> oh dear God, what has happened to me? So I was playing Candy Crush, I was watching TV, and I got to that moment in Candy Crush that you dread, you've used up all five lives, and then you have to wait for an eternity to regenerate lives. So I tried to make use of that time in a wise way. I went on Facebook um, to catch up, you know, obviously. And so while I'm catching up on Facebook, wisely using my time, I was watching TV, and on the TV came one of my favorite movies, Braveheart. I forgot all about you all on Facebook. I'm sorry. Candy Crush was forgotten. Braveheart sucked me in. There's something about those epic tales, maybe just as a man in that regard, and for my wife, it's the Hallmark Channel, anything that comes on that channel, but I got sucked into that story. There's something about the story of William Wallace, or can I say William Wallace? Something about that story, that epic tale of good versus evil, of someone willing to stand up for what is right and good, the struggle for freedom. And I found myself longing for something more than what Candy Crush could provide. I mean, Candy Crush and Facebook and those, those types of devices really provide an anesthetic for the deeper hunger that we all have. It really is just a snack when we were meant to devour the feast that God has. But I find myself okay with settling for those things. And today when I beat Candy Crush's level 104, can I get a shout out for that? (laughs) I hope my heart longs for something greater than that. And I hope this new year your heart longs for something greater. Really all these Distractions are an attempt to fill that, that void, that, that pleasure and relationships and all these things want. It's that deep hunger for something good, something lasting. And it's not just that my stomach craves things. It's that my heart and my mind do as well. And for humans, we find ourselves in this story of Genesis on an unending pursuit of knowledge of pleasure, of relationship, of all these things. But perhaps we were created for more. 
And not just the more that our world offers or that our culture entices us with and provides, but truly there is more. And maybe the longings that we have for more aren't really bad at all, but maybe misdirected. And in the story of Genesis, we find in this epic tale, the beginning of it, we find ourselves... Man, created by God in the image of God. If you notice, the story starts with the creation of all things, including all living creatures, who were created unique in their kind. They were one of a kind. And we created unique in relationship and connection with God. We're not actually created unique. We are actually created as a copy of the image of the character of God. Out of God came man. And it's in this garden that we find Adam and Eve and all of the creatures. And over this course of my studies over the last month in preparing for this, I've had to ask myself a couple of questions because I find my mind at conflict oftentimes with things that I've been told are true, things I've learned in school. And I have to stop and ask myself, how do I interpret the Bible? How do I interpret Scripture? Do I take what I know from, from what I've been taught and try to superimpose it onto Scripture? And when Scripture doesn't bend, when, when it doesn't make sense, then perhaps uh, Scripture just kind of gets set aside for something that I've been told is fact and is the real truth. That somehow Scripture got it wrong. But I, I feel like if the story in Genesis isn't to be believed, then the Bible as a whole cannot be believed. And if Genesis is not authoritative and not true, not only is the Bible not to be believed, but God is not to be believed. So ask yourself this morning, and and I encourage you to go on your quest for the truth, how do you interpret Scripture? Do we take a naturalist point of view and try to interpret the Scripture through what we've been told is true? Is Is it possible that science and the Bible can coexist, but maybe not in a way that we have been taught? Could you ask yourself, how do I interpret the evidence? If truly evidence is neutral, the facts are neutral, but how we interpret them give us our viewpoint and our worldview, then perhaps we start by asking ourselves, what presuppositions do I bring to the table when I hear something from our mainstream media and our culture and our world as far as what is true about creation and evolution? What presuppositions do I bring to that? And conversely, what presuppositions do I bring to the Bible? That the Bible must somehow prove itself to me? Whereas I question nothing that I'm told in a public setting when it comes to our schooling and education. I'm not trying to remove science from the Bible, but rather give you a perspective from Scripture. How do you interpret For our purposes this morning, we're not going to set up an evolution versus creation monologue. It's not my purpose. I want us to see something greater in the story, this epic tale. I want you to, however, continue your studies in the Scripture, and there are so many other great resources out there, including right now, that will help you and lead you to truth and hopefully bring some resolution to some of the questions you have. This morning, our text is Genesis chapter 3. If you have your version app on your phone, your iPad, you can follow along on the live version, and the notes will also be up on the screen. Here's where our epic tale picks up from last week. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. 
He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. Uh Uh-oh. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, well, we'll stop there for our reading this morning. I could keep going. This morning our topic is questioning God. We see in this account a number of questions. But the first question to be asked was by the deceiver, Satan, through the form of a serpent. Now, I don't know that before the fall of man that Animals didn't talk. Perhaps the story of Narnia is true after all. Y'all are going to go home and check your wardrobes. <laughs> right? But perhaps animals talk. Perhaps this is why Eve is not thrown off by a talking uh, snake. But in this moment, she engages conversation that begins to question God. She should have been aware of that from the beginning. Satan says... To her, did God really say? The first question, did God really say? Did God really say not to eat of any tree in the garden? What did God say? Are those the words that we find in Scripture? I think if you turn back a couple pages to Genesis chapter 2, God did not say you must not eat from any tree of the garden. In fact, he said you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But there's one you must not eat from, or you will surely die. So even in the question, Satan, who we know throughout Scripture as the deceiver, he begins to deceive the woman. He says, did God say you couldn't eat from any tree? Huh? Immediately, she has what we have come in the modern era of social media, come to know as fear of missing out. This is why we love social media and why we need to get on it so often because I have a fear I might miss out on something. By the way, y'all, I I never miss out on anything in y'all's life. You need to get more interesting lives, post more pictures of your cats and the stuff you're eating. But isn't it true that even without social media, we have this fear of missing out, which is why we make a lot of decisions in grade school and in high school that we do because we don't want to miss out. And here in that moment, Satan taps in and that says, did God really say, 
And what is Eve's, what's Eve's response? She doesn't repeat God word for word. She kind of says, well, you know, God said that we shouldn't eat, but we shouldn't touch the tree in the middle. I don't, that's actually not in there. God didn't say don't touch it. And she's in this moment beginning to be confused. She's forgetting, maybe perhaps even distrusting God's very words. Did God really say? And there's in this moment the presentation uh, to Eve that there's more that God's holding out on her. You ever have that feeling that God is holding out on you? And here Satan says to her, you know what? God doesn't want you to eat from this because he knows if you do, you'll become like him. Which in some essence was true. She would know good and evil as God does. And in this moment, she has this longing, this appetite for more. She says, well, God's holding out on me? You mean what he told me wasn't true? And so, because it was appealing to her, because it, it made sense in her physical mind, she made the decision. And she ate, she gave some to Adam. And they both participated in death in that moment. Isn't it true about all of us that we long for more, that we have this appetite, this ravenous appetite, even though we've been given all things? I don't believe more is bad, necessarily. It's just that what we want more of often misdirects us. We want more of the wrong things. Do you have a ravenous appetite for the Word of God? Do you have an appetite that cannot be quenched to sit in His presence and communicate with Him through prayer? Or is it just the things that our world provides that sort of dulls our our taste buds of what God really created us for? We wanted to write our own story, and in this moment, Eve says, well, I must be missing out on something. Let me participate. You know, Satan provides for her in this moment, promises to her freedom and independence. And perhaps that's indeed what she got, but isn't it the very thing sometimes that we want in life that take us places we didn't want to go and keep us longer than we wanted to stay? And this is where Eve finds herself. She wants to be independent and free from God, from His Word. And so we find them after eating, They hide themselves. They sew together fig leaves to cover cover themselves. I'm not even sure how they sew, but whatever. And then we see the questioning coming from God. He's now the questioning God. He comes down, and it says that he walks through the garden in the cool of the day, and he says, Adam, where are you? God came looking. God came looking. Are we to believe that God somehow didn't know where Adam and Eve were? This all-knowing, all-powerful creator God walking in the garden. Adam! You know, he's kind of like the parent who loses his kid in the store. Desperation. He was just here a second ago. You know, you ever have that moment, parents, where you, you can't find your kid and they're right behind you? 
Was that God in this moment? Was he truly looking for Adam? Or perhaps it was more of a rhetorical question to help Adam and Eve understand where they were. Perhaps he was helping them understand relationship had changed. Where are you? Perhaps that's a question you need to ask yourself this morning. Where are you? And we see the relationship begin to change because they feel things that they've never felt before. They know things they've never known before. And they do things they've never done before. They go and hide. They begin to hide themselves from an all-knowing God. Don't we all? God came looking. He says, I heard you. Look at Adam's response. I heard you. Somehow, even in his sinful state in that moment, he still had a very unique connection with God. I heard you. God was walking through the garden. Was God demonstrating himself in a physical form for a physical Adam to understand? I think so. Maybe, maybe it was a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, some form of the Messiah. Perhaps it wasn't that Adam heard God like shuffling his feet. I think God's like a ninja. If he wants to sneak up on you. But perhaps this hearing him in the garden as he's walking, maybe it's not as we imagine it. What if their fear is because in that moment they experience God as something other than father, as something other than a complete loving being, perhaps because their eyes had been opened and now they felt things and understood things differently, they feared God. And when they heard him, it wasn't soft footsteps. It was as a violent wind blowing through the garden. Perhaps a mighty rushing wind, if you read your scripture later in Acts, okay. It must have been a terrifying moment for them to experience God in, in, in that state of shame and condemnation and of guilt because they're hiding, they're trying to cover themselves up. I was afraid, I was naked. Say, what? You've been naked this whole time, Adam. <laughs> Newsflash. Their eyes are open. Are they, is the shame they feel of seeing the other, oh my, cover that up, please. Cover, cover yourself, please. Or was the shame of self, that feeling that I just want to crawl in a hole and not be seen. I want to cover me. And their desperate attempts to cover themselves with fig leaves. They hid because of the guilt. And so God questions them again. Who told you you were naked? How did you come about this knowledge? Again, Adam, you've been naked for quite some time now. You didn't have a problem with the woman before, but now you do. Who told you that you were naked? I pose that question to you. Who are you listening to? What voices in our culture or in your own life are you listening to that is telling you these things? Who told you that you were naked? Where is this truth, this revelation coming from? Have you eaten of the tree? And the man says, that woman you gave me, I was fine. 
And then you go put a girl in here, and it's all messed up. Isn't that like us, though? First we blame. What does Eve do? Well, that serpent. I, w- I was deceived, which is true. She was. But they both came to the same conclusion. I ate. They were ashamed. They were fearful of the broken relationship. They, they now had this twisted perception of God. What is it you've done, God asks Eve. She says, well, I was deceived and I ate. They both admitted that they ate. And it was in this moment of admission that they ate, that they themselves had participated in something they shouldn't have, that the redemptive story can begin. It's in that moment that you and me admit that we have eaten. If you're like me, you're tempted to say, Adam and Eve did it. Why do I have to suffer? But I'm telling you what, if that tree still existed and if that garden was still here, if it wasn't Adam and Eve, watch out, it would have been me, your pastor. I'm so sorry. It probably would have been me. And I have eaten. And if you are honest with yourself, you have eaten for things that only lead us away from God. We try to replace God and we blame others. And in our eating and in our appetite, we try to feed every desire that comes up in us. And when we do that, we reject God and His Word. We deny His authority. We break trust in His character of love and provision. And we forget his provision, that he's given me everything and all things. I want more. And my more is not his more. And that's the problem. So to the question, is there more? Jason Todd of of Relevant Magazine recently wrote an article. And the ending three statements caught me. He writes, if the Bible is the story of the only infinite good, why do we spend so much of our lives at the lesser tables? We Christians have so tamed our enjoyment in God that we cannot fathom what such thrill-seeking would even look like. Feasting on God is as foreign to most Americans as an empty stomach. Why can't we fix our souls on the only goodness who can handle our cravings? Why do we chase the more mild flavors of money, food, and sex? If only we would not stifle our gluttonous cravings but turn them in the right direction. If only we would feast on an infinite God who offers fullness of life rather than these lesser tables with far milder flavors of money, sex, food, and power. The food of the garden was given for nutrition. It was given for life. It was good for eating. This was God's purpose. And when Satan comes along, he says, not only is it good for eating and pleasing to the eye, but now you can gain something that God doesn't want you to have, as if God is holding out on you. And when we partake in those things, we discover, maybe we do discover things that God didn't want us to have. But perhaps he didn't want us to have them for a reason. And in that, our innocence is revoked. Adam and Eve cannot unknow something they now know. True? You can't unknow something. That brings us to our question. Where is the, why is there evil and suffering? 
Well, it's the problem of sin. If we're honest with ourselves, deep down, we all know something is wrong, whether we proclaim Christ or not. Something is wrong with our world. In this epic tale, there is something that has gone very, very wrong. Turn on the news, read a newspaper. Something is wrong with our world. There's war and famine and poverty, brokenness, rampant. Something is wrong with our world. I think we all can admit to that. And every story we have written is about paradise lost, about innocence broken. Think about every epic tale. It has good and it has bad. In our tale, bad is never as good as good. No, bad is never as powerful as good. Fear is never as powerful as love. Dark is never as powerful as light. This is the tale. But every story has a villain, right? There's always a conflict. And ours is not of two equals, but one of a desperate, desperate, fallen angel. Think about the stories you know. Star Wars, a man named Anakin. Ah, the force is strong with you. Anakin Skywalker, who turns to the dark side, becomes Darth Vader. There's always the villain. In The Matrix, I would argue it's Mr. Anderson. In Lord of the Rings, it's Lord Saruman. Is that right? I fell asleep. In Narnia, it's the White Witch. In Braveheart, it's Longshanks. In Cinderella, it's the stepmother. And in the story of the Bible, it is Satan who hates God and hates humans and wants to rob God of the only unique creature he loves. You see, God is love and God is holy. And sin hates God. Sin cannot even acknowledge God. This is why things went so terribly wrong. Sin cannot acknowledge God. Sin is lawlessness. And God cannot tolerate sin. Sin cannot even enter into his presence. Perhaps the problem is not then lying with God, that God is not this angry ruler of some sort. But when left to ourselves, we chase our own glory, not his. We write our own story instead of letting him write ours. We seek our own pleasure instead of his glory. And it just keeps getting worse. Flip through Genesis just a few more chapters. Cain and Abel, the first siblings. Cain murders Abel. And we see a further breakdown of relationship. That the love of God is no longer evident and the love for others is no longer evident. Am I my brother's keeper, he asks? You go a few more chapters into Genesis chapter 6, we see the story of Noah and the flood that the earth had become so wicked, God says, is there... Is there anybody righteous left? He finds Noah and his family, the only righteous among the whole earth at that point in time. He says, I'm going to start again the story of redemption. I'm going to wipe the slate clean. And so there's a great flood. Noah builds the ark. But things just get worse. Go to chapter 11 of Genesis. You'll see the Tower of Babel. The question there is, is there nothing that man cannot achieve? 
And in this story, we see that man united begins not only to build a city, but to build a tower that would reach to the heavens, that they might make a name for themselves, Genesis chapter 11 says. It reminds me of Isaiah chapter 14, of speaking of Satan and his fall. Isaiah chapter 14 says, of, says this about Satan. He said in his heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Man, in Genesis chapter 11, they were going to do that. They were going to build a tower that they could be gods themselves. They could reach above the heavens. And we find ourselves with this problem of evil just continually getting worse. Sin affected everything. Broken relationships between God and man, between husband and wife, between man and animals. Read Genesis chapter 6 after the flood. We were vegans and vegetarians before that. Holla! And after chapter 6, the fear of man comes over every animal. They stop talking to us apparently at that you think after saving them in a boat, they would, but whatever. It says that the relationship between man and am, animal was broken, and Noah threw a big barbecue. I'm very thankful for that. But the relationship even between man and animal, read for yourself, is broken. And so that leaves us in trying to answer this question, I think, with three options of, of pain and suffering. We can, one, deny that it even exists. It's all in your head. Suffering, it, suffering is, is nothing. It, it's not there. Suffering is just in your head. What if I hurt my head? Then where is suffering? Okay, never mind. But that doesn't help. To deny that suffering exists doesn't help me when I'm suffering and in pain. So then we can move to the second thing. We can remove God, reject Him as the problem. And I think that only makes it worse when we reject God and say, well, there is no God and therefore I can understand pain and suffering. I think we understand it less. We remove the possibility of providing any sort of meaningful answer to life and its questions. If there's no God who is wise and in control, then everything is out of control, blind chance, and it makes no sense. There's no purpose, no meaning. And so to our misery, we add meaningless and hopelessness and emptiness we call nihilism. As Ernest Hemingway wrote, life is a dirty trick, a short journey from nothingness to nothingness. I don't think pain the problem of pain is rectified by rejecting God. It just makes it worse. So then we, even as Christians, try to redefine God. Instead of removing God, we redefine him. We say, well, maybe he's not all-powerful and not all-knowing. Maybe evil was his creation, so maybe it's his fault. But redefining God doesn't help the problem. We can't redefine God. We're not given that option. And I think when we redefine God as not all-powerful and all-knowing, we remove his character and we really make him impersonal. And therefore, if he's not all-knowing and all-powerful, I would argue he's not God at all. God did not create evil. He created men and women 
a creature that would, by choice, honor and love him. It's not, it's not tidy. I understand. I, I understand that resolving all these questions doesn't fit in a nice, neat, little package. But I think, and I think this is what blows my mind, is God decided to create something that even through its rejection of him, he would receive honor and glory because by his own accord, his own choosing, his own power, he would love them and bring them back to himself. I I can't wrap my mind around that. It kind of blows my noodle. That God created something that would reject him, and yet he himself would fight and chase to bring us back to him. And this is the question. Is there a hope? Isn't that what we all ask? Is there any hope? Help me, Obi-Wan. You're my only hope. Right? This is the epic stories that are written. There is a hope. I find in many of these Stories that those imprisoned and who are desperate know nothing sometimes of their own desperation and imprisonment. Think of The Matrix, one of these great epic stories that I think has many salvation moments in it. The salvation of humankind held captive, but they don't know it. They have no idea they're held captive. Look up online, watch watch the YouTube version, you'll understand. But we're so enthralled by these stories, and even recently, the stories of the undead. Zombies, right? Vampires. We're so enthralled. Why? Because I think it speaks to a spiritual state that we all find ourselves in. Like in the movie, The Sixth Sense, they're dead, but they don't know they're dead, and they just keep walking around. Is that like us? The scriptures say we're dead in our transgressions. When Adam and Eve sinned, death entered. We, the image bearers of God, bring sin into the picture. And so Jesus becomes the sin bearers for his image bearers. And he bears your sins and my sins upon himself to bring us back into the right image, the corrected image of God. This time as we prepare to close, I think Jesus came I love what Calvin Miller wrote in the book, Depths of God. He writes, Calvary was God's crying place. To change a world is to spend everything and then to wait and weep. God sent Jesus as the warrior of this epic story. When you think about those tales that that we so love, William Wallace in Braveheart, Luke Skywalker, or Neo, or Aslan, or the Prince, all speak of rescue. And God, the the warrior rescuer, seen from Genesis through Revelation, reveals himself as this. He's the one who first covers Adam and Eve. He makes the first animal sacrifice to cover their sins, to cover their shame, to cover their guilt. He's the rescuer we are looking for. That God might really vanquish the enemy and reveal his glory through a creation with the ability to reject him and then does reject him. That then he chooses back, chases and redeems at a price that only he could pay and does through his own suffering and death through the person of Jesus. It's epic. Beyond any tale I could imagine. And it's what we dream of, isn't it? 
we all long for? Story writers have been writing through the ages. And it's through Jesus when we of ourselves say, I ate. I'm naked. It's in that moment that we can be restored to right relationship. As the Bible calls it, we are rebirthed. We are recreated into the image of God. Our brokenness, our mutated DNA is transformed through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The dark side is defeated. Winter in Narnia has ended. Longshanks is defeated. And for those Cinderella fans, the shoe fits and you get happily ever after. It's only through Jesus that this epic story can continue and can make sense. So the question for you this morning, simply where are you? God is pursuing you, and in that, are you letting him into your life? Are you letting him write your story, or do you continue to try to write your own? Scripture tells us that through Christ, through this rebirth that we experience in Christ, all things are made new again. The old is gone, the new has come. In this moment, as we sing this last song in closing, let's ponder that question. Where are you? This moment... In this moment, in this day, in this hour, can you sing those words? Can you say those words? Can you ponder the words that you are free? That God can take you and your circumstances, your situation, your past, good and bad, and make it new? Whatever your situation is. And for those of us who have steps over the line of faith into a relationship with Christ, find that that rebirth, as the Bible calls it, we find in that the hope of glory. We find what we were made for, our purpose. Maybe that's you this morning that you've never made that commitment to Christ. You've never invited him into your story, let alone write your story. But this is that moment in church and this holy moment, would you close your eyes and bow your heads? For those of you who have never made a commitment to Christ, this is your moment. This is where the story changes. This is where redemption comes. If that's you this morning, would you simply lift your hands? I want to pray with you. We won't point you out, but as many of us in this room have already done, we pray in that moment to invite Jesus into our story. If that's you this morning, simply lift your hands and we'll pray with you this morning. Church, our challenge going from this place is to live like the new creations we are. If the old has gone and the new has come, then we have a hope. We have something to share, something to proclaim to all of the world. And I, pray, I want to pray a blessing over you this morning. And I want to assure you, your journey doesn't begin with a, a raising of a hand. All of us in this place come to these moments of challenge, of inspiration, of motivation.
maybe even in this new year, because we're afforded somewhat this opportunity to fashion 2014 in a different way than 2013, let me bless you this morning as you take and launch into this new year. Would you stand with me? Father, thank you for your church and for your people. And for those who are on the journey yet to proclaim you as Lord and Savior, even in this moment you are speaking to their hearts and drawing them to you. And for those of us who have waved the banner of Christ, we identify with you in your death and your resurrection. May we now walk in you, with you in identity of your character and who you are, the image that we were born out of, that we were made into. Father, would you make us those new creations, that the old truly is gone, and you've breathed new life into us through the power of your Holy Spirit. May we, this moment and this year, follow you ever more closely. Lord, give us a desire, a hunger, a thirst for more of you. May our desires and our appetites for more be directed toward you and you alone. It's in the mighty name of Christ that I pray. You bless your people. Amen. Well, thank you, church. We look forward to seeing you next week.